This is Just Allen for RadioKingston.org, and today on Conversations, I have a very, very special guest, Peter Blum. And Peter has been in the Woodstock, Hudson Valley area for, I don't know, 50 years? Uh, next year, 2019, will mark my 50 years. Wow, uh, I, I was close. Yeah. Uh, and Peter is uh, uh, a, a neuro-linguistic expert, a hypnotist expert, and a sound healing expert. And I'm going to have Peter explain what these things are. Peter, can you explain neuro-linguistics to us? Okay. Uh, it's... Um, a lot of people know who Tony Robbins is. He's a very popular figure and um, has made a name for himself. And much of what he uses in his uh, seminars and workshops and work one-on-one -on -one with people is drawn from the field of neuro-linguistic programming. It is a synthesis of communication techniques that was put together in the early 70s, early to mid-70s out in California, primarily attributed to two gentlemen, John Grinder and Richard Bandler. And they were fascinated by people who appeared to be able to work magic um, in the field of therapy, uh, education, business, communication. And they wanted to understand how, how did these people do what they they did. It, it was hard to figure out sometimes how they would just reach a conclusion or say somebody would be in therapy for years and not make much change and they'd go to see Fritz Perls who's a famous one of the founders of, of uh, Gestalt therapy popularizers or Virginia Satir who was a very famous family therapist in the Bay Area and they'd go for one session and something would happen and they would shift they'd make a shift and they'd change and they approached these people and they said, how do you do what you do? And uh, a lot of them said, can't really explain it. It's second nature. But because Richard Bandler was a computer systems analyst, John Grinder was a professor of linguistics, so he was very interested in the language that people use, hence the linguistic and neuro-linguistics. And Bandler said anything that a human being does can be studied and broken down into small enough bits and pieces that we can build a model of it and we can replicate it. So they went about analyzing and building a model of, of Virginia's work, of Fritz Perls, uh, other people they studied, Abraham Maslow, uh, Piaget, the famous child psychologist, um, Gregory Bateson, very famous man who's mostly known because he was Margaret Mead's husband. Um, and finally, uh, Bateson said, go out and study, go out and meet this crazy old psychiatrist in Arizona, Milton Erickson. And they went and they studied Erickson. So NLP is a synthesis of the best of the best. And it is utilized um, to clarify communication. Uh, it's, it, it, it gives the premise that in life we don't get what we deserve, we get what we communicate. Well, uh, but how does that work, actually? Is it uh, like a, an analysis when you go to a, uh, a psychiatrist and they use this particular kind of uh, session to open up your mind or to make you uh, get in deeper into yourself? 
-hmm. How do you describe mm -hmm. okay. what actually occurs? So my understanding, and if you asked a dozen different people, you get different versions of it. My understanding is that, and, and, and it goes back earlier before I studied neurolinguistic programming, and for decades I'd been involved with uh, Buddhist practice and philosophy. And uh, the Buddhists, like the Greeks, say body, mind, uh, spirit, but in, in, in a sense they also say uh, you do a triple prostration, and they, you say I'm, I'm purifying, I'm dedicating uh, mind, speech, and body, body, speech, and mind. So in a sense, a human being is the sum of their thoughts and feelings, their actions, and their words. That's, that's our legacy. That's how people know who we are, by what we say, by what we do, and by what our, our thoughts. And the, our thoughts and feelings are internal. That's um, until we express them through our speech and action. So a person maintains who they are with this, this loop. It's a, it's a uh, uh, you know, feedback loop, a cyber loop, that as I think, I act. And also, as I uh, speak, I confirm my thoughts. I make them into reality. Um, the ancients knew this in the practice of spells and incantations. By saying certain words, whether it was a curse or a prayer, a blessing, a good spell, bad spell, we make things as they are by speaking them. The word has power. So t in the 21st century, we're saying the same thing. Take a look at your language. It's doesn't, you don't have to go into years of psychoanalysis to go back and, oh, you know, my mother locked me in the closet when I was three. Yeah, okay. And there's some value in doing that. But people can also get stuck in that for years. And now what? It's <laughs> 50 or 60 or 70, and you're still carrying that around. So changing the focus, changing the story. What is the story that you're, you're talking to yourself and to others all the time. That's a big focus of, of my work, and those stories are put into words. They're verbalized. So breaking the cycle means changing the patterns of language, which are reflecting the thought, but also are reinforcing the thinking, and changing the behavior, changing the physiology. So, you know, a famous short story from, from uh, an NLP teacher uh, he said, I, today, to all the students, get out your notebooks and fresh page and write up at the top of it how to get whatever I want. Ah, everyone got very excited. He said, all right, now, sit up and, and assume the physiology of excellence. So you put your shoulders back, you drop them, you put your chin up, you... Uh, flash your eyes. You know, this is saying some of the, the uh, Tai Chi movements. Like, now you flash your eyes. So you put life in your eyes. You smile. You take a deep breath, right? Good. He said, now underneath where you wrote how to get whatever I want in life, write ask. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying that most people don't ask for what they, it is they want? The, the reason, and this is a gross over, oversimplification, but the reason that m my my observation is the reason that many people don't get uh, something other than what they're getting is is two is twofold either or some combination of they either are unable or unwilling to uh, honestly assess where they are 
and they don't have a clear picture of where they want to be. They don't have a clear understanding. So I learned this from my teacher back in the late, mid-80s, going into the 90s, Richard, Richard Zarrow, who's no longer with us, but Richard, this was in the days before GPSs, and he said, we have something like a very clever navigator, an autopilot within us, and it needs two sets of coordinates. It will plot the course, but you need to tell it where you are and where you want to go, precisely. So are you saying a lot of people want, but they don't know what they want, and they don't know what direction to go in to get it? What do you think? <laughs> well, uh, from what you're saying, I think that's what it comes down to, but I, I yeah. just want to... and it has to do with precision as well. When I, you know, I... Um, well, you know, the listening audience doesn't. I'm in practice for years as a hypnotherapist, but also as a trainer. I train others and certify them in, in the field of hypnosis. And so we, one of the things we cover in our trainings is the idea of a well-formed outcome. And it has to satisfy cer certain criteria to, to be well-formed. So oftentimes people are t very vague. They'll say, well, I want to make a lot more money. Or, you know, I, I say, well, exactly what does that mean? <laughs> Specifically, how much more? How much do you make now? How much more? In what time frame? You know, th that's uh, because the unconscious is like the genie in the bottle. Uh, are you s now, we, we went from uh, neuro-linguistics mm -hmm. to uh, hypnosis. Mm -hmm. Do you use both? Yes. Is it they're, for me, they're interwoven. So a session would include both of uh, these practices. Yeah, yeah. The, I would say, uh, uh, maybe a third to half of what came through in the eventual synthesis that was called neurolinguistics, NLP, neurolinguistic psychology or neurolinguistic programming, was taken from studying the work of Dr. Milton Erickson, the very famous psychiatrist and hypnotherapist who pretty much single-handedly changed the way that hypnosis is understood and practiced. He was uh, way outside the box. And uh, so when I learned from Richard, Richard had me in the office. I was very fortunate. I, I, you know, we're uh, working backwards now. Um, I, but I had done other things, and in the mid-'80s, I had a tremendous shift, and I, I was invited in to study with Richard Zauer, who had studied with John Grinder one of the founders of NLP. And Richard was kept throwing stuff at me during my apprenticeship. And he wouldn't always say, oh, this is from NLP, or this is Ericksonian. It was all mixed together. Uh, Erickson also introduced the idea of a conversational hypnosis. So oftentimes people are coming to see me and they're expecting a formal trance, you know, the cliche, and your eyes are getting heavier and sleep and... That may or may not happen, but in the course of a session, people go in and out of trance all the time. And Erickson, I have a quote of his on my wall because he, he inspires me. And uh, it says, it's, it's not a matter of the type of therapy, and it's not a matter of how much time is spent. It's a matter of reaching the personality by saying the right word at the right moment. Well, that's a very interesting thought. You know, let me digress for a moment because I got a little ahead of myself. Uh, where where did you actually grow up before you came upstate to the Catskills? I 
spent my formative years, as they like to say, in the Bronx and Manhattan. What uh, part of the Bronx? Uh... Well, I was in the area that's known as University Heights. Uh, it's the West Bronx, uh, near the old NYU Hall of Fame campus, Fordham Road, yes, University Avenue. I know that area <laughs> so well because <laughs> yeah. I'm also from the Bronx. Yeah, and so hanging out at Alexander's on uh, Grand Concourse. I my parents lived in Manhattan when I was born, uh, a couple of blocks from the Museum of Natural History and the Planetarium. So some of my earliest memories are dinosaurs and and uh, constellations. Yes, uh, I hear now that the um, uh, observatory there doesn't have that old piece of equipment anymore. Everything is uh, so new. It's all digitized. Yes, now, right? everything's yeah, digitized. Yeah. Well, anyway, so when I was about four or five, they moved to the Bronx, and that's where I went to school and high school. And then uh, when I broke away and began that process of individuation, of finding out who I am without my family, around my parents, I moved back to Manhattan, and I lived in various neighborhoods from 1965 to 1969, and that's when I moved to Woodstock. In 1969? 69. And that was such a good move. Oh, I can't imagine my life if I hadn't done that. I feel the same way. It was getting very dangerous for me in New York. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you made it out alive and uh, you, you came up to the country. And what did you do in your early years up here in uh, the Woodstock area? I had a very small uh, skill set in terms of um, employability. I had dropped out of college. I, I always thought of myself as a, an intelligent person with a certain innate intelligence. And uh, But the only real marketable skill that I had was I was a really good typist. <laughs> but I'm, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. I had worked in books bookstore, in a famous bookstore in New York, uh, the Gotham Bookmark. And I had worked for a while as uh, the a manuscript typist for a very well-known, uh, perhaps one of the seminal poets of the 20th century, W.H. Auden. Um, and I had some book. I loved books. I loved books, and I was familiar with them. And the first job that I had in Woodstock was um, working uh, in a, an occult bookstore. Now, we don't call them that anymore. We call them New Age or metaphysical bookstores. Back then, in the days of Samuel Weiser, it was an occult bookstore, and it had all that air of mystery and, you know, little blue-haired ladies who were theosophists and, you know, and shh, let's talk about chakras because nobody knows about them. It was a very different time, and I was fascinated by it, and I wandered into this bookstore that had been started by um, Elliot Landy, Elliot Landy, uh, the, our, our famous photographer, and uh, Elliot had started this to, as a place to show his artwork, but he was fascinated with metaphysics, and he began ordering and selling books out of the space that was above where Pegasus is in, in Woodstock now, upstairs. And um, I said, do you need any help? I know books, and I love books, so I worked there, and I ended up co-managing it, and then eventually Elliot gave it, pretty much gave it to this other fellow and I. We, we owned it for, for a brief period of time, but we had no clue how to run a business. 
We had a great time. That's where I got my college education. I tried to find and read anything I was interested in, from astrology to Zoroastrianism, everything in between, Tarot, I Ching, uh, the Eastern and Western mystery traditions, uh, yoga, meditation. So you've always had an interest in uh, esoteric, uh, occult. Uh, Apparently so. The mystery. Apparently of life. so. Yeah. And and would you say that that interest brought you to these practices today, that you that you're involved with sound healing, hypnosis, and neurolinguistics? Yes, um, I think you know. If one turns around and looks back and tries to um, figure out how did I get here, you know what were the what were the bends and twists in my life exploration that led me here? It seems kind of obvious that I was always tracking a certain fascinated with human behavior. Uh, communication, but also the the unseen, the invisible world, the, the the intuitions and hunches and visions and dreams, and I've studied with Native American medicine people and shamans as well, and I incorporate some of that into the work that I do. We yes, just yeah. I see that you do sweat lodges. Ah, we and that's just part yeah. of your work also. Well. Uh, yeah, work, maybe. I don't think maybe of it as work. work. Is <laughs> the, maybe work is <laughs> the wrong word. We, we just had a beautiful lodge yesterday, and um, it's uh, good medicine. It's good medicine. Um, back in the 90s, through a s curious set of circumstances, I sort of uh, don't know exactly. I do know how it happened, but it was, it, it was, it was a funny situation where I, I ended up getting ordained as an interfaith minister because a friend of mine wanted to get married and wanted me to perform the ceremony, and I, I did through the Wittenberg Center, which was a, uh, had a, a, a seminary program at that time, and I got ordained, and they, he ended up not getting married. So as a coyote is around sometimes for me, coyotes is sort of trickster figure. And so I got coyoted into being a minister, but since then I've performed a number of other uh, wedding uh, ceremony eulogies. And um, for me, the sweat lodge is sort of like my ministry. If I'm a minister, I should have a ministry, but I don't have a church or a regular service every Sunday, anything like that. I have the sweat lodge and it's always, there's no charge, like church. People come and they gather together in a place to be in community and to pray and um, uh, to purify themselves. What happens in a sweat lodge? Well, I'm going to state the obvious. You get very hot and you sweat. Do you, do you talk <laughs> during a sweat yeah, lodge? Yeah, yeah. And again, I, I'm very aware that this there's uh, some politics around this, and so I'm very careful to say this is not a traditional Native American sweat lodge. We honor a lot of the um, ideas and philosophies, um, but there, there's some concern about people appropriating things inappropriately from different cultures, and so I always announce to the group that gathers, my tribe is the Jews from the Bronx, and <laughs> that's, that's my tribe. So 
in the lodge, in the lodges that I pour the water for, people are encouraged to offer their prayers, to talk about um, whatever is in their heart, um, something they can unburden themselves. People go in and pray for healing for themselves or others. And um, you sweat out a lot of toxins. It's physically very good for you. Uh, do you uh, build a sweat lodge uh, each time you do this, or uh, do you have a permanent <clears throat> sweat lodge? Well, it's uh, it's dressed each time. We have a lodge that's made every couple of years, and then it gets the saplings get brittle and start to break, and we take it down, and we have to cut fresh saplings and build another. It's a hemisphere. They're rooted in the earth, the saplings trimmed, and then tied, bent over and tied. So you see a half a half a dome above the earth, and and then it's covered each time with blankets, and and that's how it's made dark and airtight and light tight. And stones are heated for a time outside in a fire, and then brought in and put in a pit in the center. People gather inside. The flap is closed. You're in closest thing that most people experience after being born to the womb. It's hot. It's dark and it's wet. How many people do you usually have in a sweat lodge? I'm sure it varies from yeah, time to time. Whoever shows up, and sometimes there's five or six, and sometimes there's 10 or 12, and sometimes there's 20. And I have a teacher who I um, has began as a mentor. He still is, but now it's been developed over 25 years into a friendship, and uh, 30 years almost. And uh, when he comes... I step aside, and he pours the water, and uh, he's kind of a well-known guy, and so word gets out, and so we've had uh, 30 people in the lodge when he's there. But when, when you say he pours the water, does he pour water over the stones, yeah. and that creates the, the steam? steam? Yeah. And uh, now that you're in the sweat lodge, do you have to go out and get more hot rocks as time progresses? Yeah. There are in the lodges that I learned, and they said... Do it as you were taught. That's the uh, admonition. Do it as you were taught. So the way I was taught was to do four rounds, one for each of the four cardinal directions. This is based on the medicine wheel teachings. And the flap is opened, and more stone people, as they're referred to, more stone people are brought in from the fire for each round. So... And these stones, are there specific kinds of uh, rocks or stones that you use, or any stones can absorb this heat? Um, the best stones, which are very difficult to find around here, are igneous rock, lava stones, because they're forged under such high heat that they can be heated over and over again without crumbling. Uh, can't find those here, so we use what we can. River stones are good, but they will also sometimes hold water in them, so you want them out of the stream for a while so they don't explode in the fire. Granite is good. Uh, limestone is good. Uh, all of those are suitable. Do you do any of your teachings, your hypnosis, uh, or anything like that in a sweat Only lot? in a very sneaky way. Okay. <laughs> so it's so subtle that they don't... I don't even know it. No. <laughs> it's, you know, here's the thing that I'd like to bring up is that I want to expand the people's understanding of what hypnosis is. And I'd like to say that from my point of view, have been, having been involved in the field for 30-plus years, everybody's going in and out of trance all the time. It's, it, it's not what you see on 
in old movies or on the stage, although that is a form of it. But the the sense of viewing the spectrum of consciousness, the rainbow of consciousness, and where is normal, quote, normal waking consciousness, and where how does that shift in our brain when we're focused on studying something, learning something? How is that different from when we're spacing out, staring up at the clouds and daydreaming, or when we're meditating, or when we're listening to music, or when we're, you know, there, there's this, uh, we, we go in and out of different states of consciousness all the time, and, and as we study the brain and get more coordination between scientific uh, information, we see that you can measure a person's brainwave activities. And so if a person is in alpha, more alpha, more theta is being generated, you would say that they're in that kind of daydreamy, hypnagogic state, theta in particular, four to seven cycles per second in state in between waking and sleeping. And, and what's the other part of hypnosis besides the physiological state and the brainwave state? Suggestions. Why do I go to see a hypnotist? I want them to make suggestions to me about something I want to change or improve in my life. Well, we're always making suggestions to each other all the time. In a sweat lodge, just as in a sound bath or any other kind of sacred ceremony, you're creating a space and there's a, a different vibe. There's an expectation. I, I watched you do some of your shows years ago. You know, creating the situation, the setup. So people are waiting on the edge of their seat. They're, they're expecting something. And in that moment, it goes back to what Erickson said, reaching the person with the right word at the right moment. So in a sweat lodge, certainly people in are, are, are out of their ordinary state. They're in the dark. <laughs> they have a, a lot of clothes off, although people wear, you know, some shift or, or shorts or a bathing suit or a towel in the, but it's different than usual you're sitting with a bunch of people maybe you know them, maybe you don't but we're all in this enclosed space together and so people can have profound shifts in awareness in that place because it's set up for that now i see also that you do sound healings do you ever do sound healings in a sweat lodge or is that a separate entity completely? I would say that sound is part of the lodge experience. Um, there, over there, is a... I brought a, a frame drum, and also I was out with my grandson yesterday, and uh, we found these, and he said, Look! They're a musical instrument, and they're people out there can't see. They're seed pods that we found that had fallen from a tree. So we might bring rattles or, or drums like this into the lodge, and there's singing in the lodge, and people are encouraged to sing. So. Or this. Which is a heartbeat. And people may not recognize it consciously as such. But 
on an unconscious level, there's a something called entrainment, which is a central part of all the work I do with sound. And I would say probably all the healing work, the idea that we're, we match, we tend to try to match a rhythm that we hear, consciously or unconsciously. So if I'm talking to someone and I start out like this, and then as I'm talking to them, I begin to slow down my speech and the rhythm, the heartbeat rhythm. There's a chance, I can't guarantee it, but there's a chance that their heart rate will also slow down because it's entrained to it. So that, that's a scientific, mathematical, uh, psychoacoustic principle of entrainment. And it happens in nature. Uh, you can see if there are a group of fireflies that are all blinking asynchronously and they come closer together and they'll start to blink in sync. Uh, living heart cells will pulsate and if put under a microscope they will, and brought close together, they'll start to pulsate in sync. So this is a, a female roommates in college will often find after a few months their, their menstrual cycles will match up. It's a principle in nature that seems to say maybe it's more economical for things to be in rhythm than out of rhythm. So uh, maybe one of the main uh, ideas or concepts that I'm thinking about in sound healing is the idea of being in rhythm, being in good rhythm. Um, people have arrhythmia or a rapid heartbeat or their pulses are erratic and, and that's usually they're out of balance. So being in tune and in rhythm are musical concepts that we can kind of transpose into working with other people. Well, you know, I've uh, been to a few of your uh, sound events, and uh, I just absolutely <laughs> would, was transcended uh, from listening to your Tibetan bells. I, I see you have a few bells with you today. Maybe you would like to give us a sample of how they sound and how you feel about them in your healing uh, program. I'd be delighted to. We're trying to figure out here the best distance for uh, people to hear the bowls. I'm going to strike them and see. sound programs, you usually have 20 or 30 
maybe uh, yeah. different size bells. Yeah, I and- know. It was hard. I told my bowls, I said, I can't bring you all. And they had to, like... Some of them had to face disappointment. They drew lots. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I think the winners uh, sounded uh, beautiful. In fact, uh, this might be a, a perfect moment uh, to play one of your CDs that you brought today. Okay. Oh, that was just great, uh, Peter. Uh, We're going to play a a few more as we go along, but uh, I really enjoy this sound. Uh, It it, it is uh, transcending. When you hear that, uh, the vibrations and the different sounds, it really does take you to another place. It kind of clears everything in your mind. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I've been a musician all my life, and I was very... Fortunate, I grew up in a artistic household. My mom was a professional watercolor artist, very gifted, a life member of the Art Students League. And my dad uh, was a um, half salesman, half operatic baritone. And his great dream was to sing opera, and he sang a lot, and, and we had music around in the house all the time. And so very early on, I was exposed to many, many different types of, of music. It was on the radio. We had a piano in the house. My mom and dad would sing Broadway show duets together. It, you know, it's in my blood. And I started out when I was 13. I got a kunga drum and a guitar, and I started with those instruments. And there's something about about its the ability to move me. I didn't know about hypnosis, meditation, or anything. I just knew that when I listened to music or played music, I, it took me into a different 
<laughs> realm. I was gone. And uh, so I was fascinated with that, fascinated with that. And um, listening to jazz and listening to avant-garde music. Um, um, and, and North Indian classical music. There was a WQXR, the radio station of the New York Times in the 50s used to have a Sunday afternoon program where they would play an hour or two of North Indian classical music. And this was before George Harrison introduced Ravi Shankar to, you know, the, to the West and before anything like that had gone on. And so the um, exposure, and I heard these sounds. I didn't have anyone to talk to about them, but I, they sounded so familiar, so familiar. And um, later, when I was began playing the guitar, I kept trying to tune the guitar so that it sounded like um, it had that buzz and those sus the sustain, which is based on a lot of sympathetic strings that the sitar and the sarod have that you, they'll, they'll keep it, the note hanging in the air much longer, much greater resonance. And finally, in 1978, I moved to Amsterdam, Holland, that, that's my three-year getaway. Other than that, I've been in Woodstock straight through. But from 78 to 81, I moved to Amsterdam. And while I was there, I, I found a sitar teacher. I found a gentleman who was a, a virtuoso sitarist. And I went and I studied sitar with him for three years. And so that, that enriched my understanding. Uh, after three years, I got to call myself a good beginner. Um, it's a huge field, but I learned a few ragas, and I learned the, the principles, uh, the ideas of how it's constructed, and it's a, it's a vast field of study. Do you still play uh, sitar now? No, uh, but uh, on one of the uh, thing pieces that you'll, I brought you a CD, uh, hopefully you'll play a little later in the program, the uh, uh, A Walk in the Park is a... Um, an example of me using the guitar in in that way by open tuning and trying to get increased resonance and playing raga scales, um, I've attempted to maintain that sensibility. I, I just felt like I could not continue with the sitar without uh, ongoing access to a teacher. And when I moved back, well, my dear guru, Indian guru, music guru, Mr. Uh, Jamaluddin Bartia was still in Holland and I was here. So I went back to guitar, but I brought some of the things I learned with me. And and so I was wondering, well, what is it, what's the thread, the unifying thread to all these different kinds of music that I'm fascinated with? I love African drumming, the drumming of Baba Olatunji and those who came after him, bringing that to the West. I loved... Uh, the chanting of the Tibetan monks. Well, it's so primal. And and there's a richness of overtones, uh, yes, and uh, and a rhythmic entrainment. Um, and so, as I was studying hypnosis in the mid late eighties, I was like, "Oh, that's the unifying thread." They all put me in a hypnotic trance. <laughs> These, so, as opposed to listening to pop music, 
Yes, I think that music was uh, hypnotic. Hypnotic. Uh, Indian uh, styled music is very hypnotic. Very hypnotic, yes. And they say these sounds. What what about a singing bowl? I played some bowls here. Where did that come from? What made them decide to make this? So this tradition of sacred singing metals and, and, and so many cultures, the sound of a bell, a church bell, will call people to prayer, or the sound of a, a large bowl being struck will begin a meditation. So I heard these bowls, I heard recordings of them, and I couldn't believe it. I, wow, where did those sounds come? How do you make a sound like that? And I started trying to find them, and they weren't, in the 70s, you couldn't find them that much, but I, I found a few, and um, I believe that the ancient sages and mystics and yogis went into these states of deep meditation, and they not only saw things that they brought back that then became mandalas and and Sri Yantra and and a visual pattern, uh, fractal minarets, pyramids, all these visuals, but they heard sounds in those other dimensions. And when they came back, they tried to recreate the sounds of the void the sounds that they heard out there beyond space and time. And you get something like a gong or a bowl or overtone singing, and it's, it, it is transcendental. You know, I wanted to say that first sound that we heard from your first recording, Coming Home, was really beautiful. But I think this would be a great uh, opportunity to play another one of your CDs Uh, inside, outside, and we'll hear a selection from that. Thank you. 
I just love the singing bowls. I, 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 I think that music is so incredible. That was um, the amazing teacher of sound meditation who I was honored to call one of my teachers, uh, the great Pauline Oliveros, uh, a local hero, lived in Kingston for many, many years and had the Deep Listening Foundation. And for that particular project, Inside Outside, I thought, I've studied so many different kinds of music and I know so many different types of musicians. And often the singing balls are sort of pegged into a, a little box that it's background music. It's, or it's, it's sort of like um, solids. It's, it's, I, 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 it doesn't change that much. It's droney. And it is droney, but it also, I said, I know jazz musicians, I know classical musicians, I know Indian musicians. Let me invite them all in poets, uh, singers, to jam with the bowls and create something different. So that was this project, and that was Pauline Oliveros. On, you know, people go, that was an accordion? Because she played the accordion like it was, you know, there's other cuts on there. Joe McPhee, a great jazz musician, uh, avant-garde jazz musician, came up from Dutchess County, and uh, I said, oh, Joe, you bought a, a soprano saxophone flugelhorn? He goes, no, those are sound generators. Well, so he didn't want it to be held into a category of expecting a certain type of sound. Let's get back to your practice of, uh, uh, of uh, neuro-linguistics, uh, hypnosis, and sound healing. Do you combine all of these in a session? It's sometimes. If somebody came in, let's say maybe you get a certain amount of people that want to stop smoking cigarettes or they want to lose weight. Mm -hmm. or they want to change their mind around. You interpret what of these three different practices might work for them or uh, together, uh, using yeah. all of them together? Or yeah, separately? I mean, usually people find me uh, through the world of hypnosis. And when they come in for a session, they've been referred by someone and they say, you know, I, I have um, pain physical pain and I, I don't want to get on medication and I, I, I heard that hip, people can use hypnosis to manage pain or they may have a, a fear, a phobia, um, fear of driving over high bridges or something like that, and, you know, fairly common stuff and, and they're, they're hoping that hypnosis can help. So certainly I, I'll work with them on their language, on their self-talk and, and give them certain linguistic hints, things that they can look, listen for, red flag in their, in their language that they can begin to change uh, how they describe themselves and how they describe their situation. There's a certain amount of formal trance that goes on where I um, will lead them into a hypnotic state through relaxation and breathing and then maybe tell them a story. The sound healing is more... Um, uh, kind of in a separate category, although I will have, I mean, you come to my office, you see gongs and singing bowls and drums and tuning forks all, all around. And I did want to mention a wonderful organization that I've been affiliated with for six or seven years at least called Healthcare is a Human Right. And it's an alternative 
uh, access access to alternative health care um, for free. And there's a, a clinic that's held once a month in Kingston at the Lace Mill, uh, which is in a low-income uh, artist, partially subsidized Rupco Housing for Artists on Cornell Street. And uh, the second Thursday of every month, we go over there and we set up a pop-up clinic for three hours and p- people can come in and get Reiki, uh, acupuncture, massage, um, chiropractic. So it's a collective of uh, uh, Yes, a number people. of practitioners. come. We come in and we set up and there's a... a interview process people are given their choice of treatment on first come first serve basis and it's a great great organization and it's completely you know a um, philanthropic you know it's it's charitable no, nobody gets paid no one gets paid they just do it they to volunteer their time because health care is a human right absolutely and why you know it's not covered these things are not covered by a lot of insurances and so there's a a good-hearted group of people that get together and do this regularly, and we, it, it started out as a division of family originally, family Woodstock, which I also had a decades-long association with another great organization, and 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 it was held, and it's still held once every three months in Woodstock, and once every three months in Phoenicia, but it's once a month in Kingston, and people can go to the website and do a search for you know healthcare as a human right. Is that the website yeah, name? Yeah, Health? healthcare is human right, and um, you'll find. Com. I think it's dot org. Dot org. Not, yeah, I'm pretty sure. You you can find it, and uh, I encourage people to check it out. So when I go there, the sign says Peter Blum Hypnosis and Sound Healing. So I can't really bring and set up my gongs and bowls. I might bring a little rattle, especially if I can find some seed pods. Or I'll bring tuning forks. Now, I've been incorporating the use of tuning forks into my sound healing and hypnosis practice for the last several years because they're less odd. They're not foreign. They're not woo-woo. People are, oh, tuning forks. Oh, okay. You know, I don't have to go through an elaborate mythology of where the singing bowls, are they really made from seven metals, you know. and No, they're tuning forks. And, and I've particularly like using the uh, the C and the G. And I'm going to strike these and hold them up so that uh, people can hear you. They're tapped on the knees on the flat part of the tine um, so that you don't get a sharp sound, but rather a... I'm moving the two forks closer and further away from the microphone so you can hear the two sounds, but when they're heard at the same time. Not only hear them, you can feel feel them. Yeah, Yeah. and that that interval, and I I again need to acknowledge I've learned a lot about this from a very wonderful, uh, another natural resource, a national treasure that lives in our backyard, John Bouillou. A tuning fork maven who's down in Stone Ridge and travels all around the world teaching tuning forks. He's right here in Ulster County, and I get my forks from John, and John has written a number of books, one called Human Tuning, and he talks about the forks because uh, he said this interval of a C and a G is a fifth, 
and it's called the perfect fifth, or sometimes even called the divine interval. It's the most harmonious interval in Western music. We have the scale. So this is a, a C, 256 beats per second. So that's the fifth. And that, he says, he's gone into a laboratory, and they did this, and there's a, a MedPub paper in the back of his book that shows under laboratory conditions, they were able to show that when a person heard those two notes at the same moment, one in each ear, binaurally, there's a spike in the production of nitric oxide in the body, which is one of our natural stress deregulators. In other words, it's a... Uh, a neurochemical that is produced naturally by the body to deal with stress. When we hear that sound, more of it gets produced. So just listening to that, I'll, I'll tell someone, before I even start the hypnosis, come sit down, relax, take, take a few deep breaths. I want to tune you. I want to tune you. Maybe you got a little out of tune. Maybe somebody looked at you cross-eyed or cut you off in traffic or <laughs> you woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Here, just listen to these sounds. And it's almost universal. Uh, there's a smile will appear. It's like a smiling sound. It's, it's such a lovely interval. So that's a, a very basic way that I'll incorporate sound healing into the work. Now, on my form, when people come in, it says check all areas pertaining to you that you want to work on. So there's the usual stress management, smoking cessation, weight management, um, uh, pain control. But I threw in, you know, shamanic journeying, sound healing, past life regression, sports excellence. I worked uh, last year with a, a, a um, young man, 14-year-old kid from, from uh, New Paltz area who was in the state wrestling championships. And his dad brought him in because he said he's already got a great wrestling coach. He's got mad skills physically. I want him to have that mental edge. And I said, good for you, because all the top elite athletes in the world now are working with a sports psychologist or a visualization coach or a mental coach. So, sure, let me, let me have Adam. <laughs> you know? And we did a few sessions, and he found it very useful. So, but the sound healing, if people see that, they'll go, oh, you do that too, or shamanic journey. Oh, I didn't know you did that. So it's, it's there as an open invitation. Um, Mostly the work I do with sound is in group settings these days. Um, it's just a lot to set up the instruments. You know, and to carry them. To, yeah. And I have them. I, I'll play a gong for someone in my house, but to actually set up to do a session for people, it's, I'll, I'll say, come to a group session. You'll get all the same sounds in a group of 25 or 30 in a yoga studio as you would in my house. You know, it's... It's, there's a saying amongst energy workers, the energy goes where it's needed. Uh, I think the same is true of the sounds. The body will find those sounds that it needs and will absorb them. While we're talking about sounds, I would like to play another uh, piece from your Penumbra album, and let's listen to that. 
gosh, I just, I just love, I just love the singing bowls and I, I love the vibrations they put out. Uh, Peter, tell me, how do people get in touch with you? Do you have a website and a phone I do. number? Do I have all the above. I'm a thoroughly modern Millie. I've had a website uh, for a number of years, and it's very simple, easy to remember. It's soundsforhealing.com, one word. Sounds, plural, soundsforhealing.com. Uh, my phone number you can find on the website, but the, for those who want to have a pen and want to write it down, is 845-594-1209. Um, I still have a landline, but it ports over directly to my cell phone anyway these days, so you might as well dial direct. You can text on that number, too. Tell us tell us uh, who, who should come to see you, people with uh, anxiety problems. Uh, do you, you take care of anxiety? You take care of, as we said before, smoking, <laughs> and you take care of all kinds... Well, that's an interesting yeah. choice of words, take care. You know, I, I will... Um, say that uh, I love family's motto which is any problem under the sun um, anything that you want to work on changing or improving um, get in touch with me and we'll talk about whether I feel it's, it's appropriate and feasible um, I don't do long term therapy this is all short solution oriented brief therapy um, I have a couple of friends who are really excellent Therapists, psychotherapists, and, and I'll refer out if somebody wants to do that. But, you know, typically I'll see somebody. I always want to get them in and out the door as, as quickly as possible. So I might see someone for one session or two or three or maybe four. But after that, I'm, I'm like, well, you know, this is about change work. It's <laughs> And if it's nothing's changing, then I don't want to take your time or money any longer. Try a different modality. Maybe go get some acupuncture or... Or, or whatever. Another, another form yeah, of Yeah, you know, go change your diet. Now, <laughs> you also said that uh, you maintain or you're interested in a Buddhist uh, way yeah. of life. Yeah, I'm what's called a Jubu. Is that Buddhist flavored? <laughs> Buddhist flavored, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a wonderful book I read recently called Zen uh, Wrapped in Chocolate Dipped in Karma. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and... You know, as an interfaith minister, which I was ordained as back in the 90s, and I I feel that it's important to be familiar with and comfortable with all the major spiritual paths, uh, as many as possible. So I go and study with my friend Robert Esformis, who teaches classes on the Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, and I've studied with uh, Sufis and, and the... the you know, um, esoteric side of 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 uh, Islam and Hindu practice um, and Native American uh, earth-based practices, spirituality. And I would say the one that for me resonates the most deeply is the Tibetan Buddhist teachings, and I'm, I've been very fortunate to have been involved with that and and studied with some great teachers since the mid-70s. Well, you're a very interesting fellow, Peter Blum. <laughs> I, I've enjoyed our conversation, but I'd like to know before before we end our, 
uh, session of conversations today. Is there anything you'd like to put out for people besides for get out and vote? Yeah. Is there anything you can say to leave yeah, our... Yeah, yeah. Be kind to each other. Everybody's doing the best that they can. And uh, there's a wonderful book called The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. And there are some books that I say you don't even have to read the book. Just read the inside flap. Just, you know, you get the four agreements are first always uh, um, speak impeccably. Always, you know, always use your, your words for good, never to harm or for malicious purposes or slander or gossip. And the second one is don't make assumptions. Ask questions if you don't know. And the third one is don't take anything personally. That's very good advice. Other people are projecting their stuff. You're just a blank screen that people are projecting stuff on all the time. The fourth one is always do your best. And it's so simple, and I sometimes find myself, oh, you know, in the Tao Te King, it says, he who feels punctured must once have been a bubble. <laughs> <laughs> well, Peter, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much. Today. Thank you so much for coming. And uh, just have a wonderful holiday season and enjoy that uh, grandchild of yours. Mm.